Awesome. Welcome everyone to the table. Um, this is a, I think this is our second to last one. Um, we have one more after this, so countdown's here for a senior. Um, it's one of my last times, so try not to cry. No promises. Um, I'm gonna get right in. I, I got I got a I got a question for you guys. Just kind of thinking among yourselves, what were some of your what were some of your biggest fears from childhood? Just first couple things that jumped to your head. Biggest fears. Big or small. I've got two. Okay, I don't know what you guys are. One is is wasps. Like, hands down, the wasps fall from the ceiling all the time. And do not expect me to be the brave one and come and save you. I have any other guys do that. Hate wasps. Terrified of them. The second fear of mine is from from my mom. Okay, my short, my sweet little mom. A lot of you've seen her. Um, I was so afraid that if, they, if these words, okay, she'd come up with a smile on her face and say, "You just wait until your dad gets home." <laughs> now, a lot of you guys, now you laugh, nervous laughter, because you know what I'm saying. It is terrible because dad is coming, and dad is coming. He's going to bring the rod, okay? And I judge, I, I deserve the rod, but that doesn't mean like the, the next three hours of my time, are, I'm terrified, you know, waiting in the room, hoping they forget. Never did. It's awesome. <laughs> so we've walked through Second Corinthians this entire year, I believe, um, walking through what Paul is saying to the church, um, maybe some, some warnings. Uh, we know all the, a lot of background stuff that's been going on. Um, this section, Paul is, is finishing up his discussion with them, and, and he's going to talk a lot about him, him coming now. Like, Paul, is, I'm coming to you. And this is what he's going to, he's going to be speaking a lot on, on what to do or on what to expect and what he just hopes that it's going to accomplish from this. I'm going to pray, and then I will have Jared read for us, our, our elect, self-elected reader. All right. Bow your heads. Dear God, thank you so much for this time together. God, thank you for this body of believers. God, thank you for just the years that we've had together. Um, and thank you for the opportunity for allowing me to speak here. Lord, it's, it's your words, it's your spirit speaking to your people, and I just ask that you be here among us. That whatever message we have tonight um, that's stemming from your words, God, I, I pray that you would help us take it to heart and and that we would go and walk, and we would, we would honor you in how we live. We love you, Jesus, and we pray all of this in your name. Amen. Alright, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, almost done. Jared, can you read, as everyone's turning there, can you read verses 1 through 4? Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but 
is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we are we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, you will live with him by the power of God. Okay, so last week, if you guys remember, we were talking we had this thing called the vice list where Paul Paul was saying like um to be a part, to be healthy, to to walk right with Christ, you you do you don't oh, you don't do these things, and we walk through like conceit. I, I'll just read it for you. Uh, it's verse twenty one, around twenty and twenty one. Um, he says, "I wish, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as I wish. That perhaps there may be quarrelling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder." I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. So this is coming straight off of that. And Paul is, he, he says in here, it was, he referenced Deuteronomy 19. And I, I didn't know this at first, but he said, Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, which is kind of like, okay, cool. Um, I don't really know why you put that in there. But he's, he's saying that this is the third time. Like, he's came at first, in his first visit, and, and he warned them, like, hey, these actions that you're doing, the way you're living, the way you're speaking, and the way you're representing Christ is not right. Um, you can't do that. And, and then we remember, we've referenced it a lot, the tearful letter, that's the second time, and we're saying, like, I, you cannot continue living this way. And the third time is Second Corinthians, is the third witness to them. And he's saying, like, you have, according to the Deuteronomy laws, you have three witnesses, and now I'm coming, and I'm coming in judgment. Um, he, earlier he's saying, I don't want this to be harsh, I don't want to be severe, but if, if, there's, continued, if there's continued practice, if you, if you haven't repented, then it's going to be bad for both of us. And just thinking back to my, like, the, I referenced my dad earlier. Like, this makes sense. We, we understand this. Um, I don't know your dad. My dad would always be like, he'd give you a warning. He'd say, if you continue to do this, uh, mouth off, I don't know, um, I'm going to punish you. And he's saying, the time's coming, and, like, I'm, I might have to come in power. I might have to come in judgment. Um, he references... I'll just read it for you. He, he, they said, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. So, the Corinthians are asking, they're saying, Paul, I want to see something. Okay, you, you've said a lot of stuff. We Remember we talked about all those uh, different, there's, false teachers, and, and we compared, and they're saying, hey, Paul, I, I want to see proof. I, I want to see something, some kind of power that shows that we believe in you, that, that gives us, gives us like, reason to believe in you. And they could be asking several things. I'm not entirely sure what they're wanting here. Um, it could just be that they're asking for a miracle, like, hey, you're claiming to speak on Christ's behalf. Can you, I don't know, give us... Give us some razzle-dazzle. I don't know. Um, they could be asking um, maybe for some vision, like uh, some outlines of the vision that he told them. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, he's saying, 
I went to third heaven, and guys, I've seen some things, and, but I'm not going to talk about them. They could just be saying, hey, would you, actually, would you actually outline what that vision might be? It could simply be asking for eloquence. Like, hey, we have these, we have these false teachers, and they, seem to, they can talk awesome. They can stir up the crowd, and we can all like, feel great about ourselves and feel like that's powerful. Like, Paul, can, maybe can, when you come, can you show us a little bit of, I don't know, speak better? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I, I know Paul is not afraid of any of them, um, not the miracle at least. In, in Acts 13, Paul straight up strikes a dude blind. Like, he had this opposition, and there, his, um, the guy, I think the guy's name was Simon Bar-Jesus or something. And he was opposing them, and he's like, okay, if you're going to act like that, boom, you're blind. And I don't know about you guys, but if someone strikes someone else blind in front of me, I would listen to them. Me and Drew actually joked about maybe hiring someone to maybe ask Jalen to, you're blind, and then you guys would listen to me. <laughs> but that was complicated, and we didn't want to do that. Whatever power Paul is talking about here, um, the, the message is clear. He is coming in judgment. He said that, okay, like G- he referenced himself, he compared himself to Jesus, how Jesus was weak. He showed weakness on the cross, and that God's power was made manifest through him through his resurrection. In the same way, Paul, you've, he's spoken about his weakness. You've seen how, how much like, he's suffered and how how little he, he wants to qualify himself in front of them. And so now, God can, like any kind of power coming from Paul is completely, like you would say, oh, that's completely God. It's not Paul. But now he's coming in judgment. And I just, I think, I don't know, I always, I get this in my head where it's like, you know, you tell him I'm coming. And hell's coming with me, you hear? The only problem is, is heaven's coming with them, and that sounds like, oh, that sounds great, but if, if the people that are, have put themselves continually, who are supposed to be the people of God, are acting out, line, out of line with God's will, then heaven might not be a great thing, and the judgment of God might be harsh. And I want to speak about judgment a little bit. So, our culture, the way we kind of, Think of judgment. We don't like it. That's kind of like a buzzword. You're judging me. Um, we would say that judgment is hateful. In I don't know if it's an American thing or if it's just especially a college thing, but but we would say that like if you were I don't want you to judge me. I just, want, I just want you to accept me for who I am, to love me. Um, we value authenticity. We value uh, being genuine. And anything that, that damages that, anything that says, like, you, you're not seeing me as I am is bad. We, we don't want that in our society. The only problem that I see with this, I mean, there's a lot of good things. I'm not, I'm not bashing accepting people. Like, love people. You're Christians. You know this. The only bad thing with this raising, this 
wanting to be genuine, this wanting authenticity above everything else is, what if you're, if you're authentic, if you're genuine, but you're genuinely wrong? Like, you are, you're, you're being genuine, but you're just, you're not right. I think of a spoiled child. Okay, we're, we're talking a lot about judgment and dad and whatever. Um, a spoiled child acting bad in front of his parents is being genuine. But we wouldn't say that's a good thing. There is a line that if crossed, no matter if they're being they're acting within themselves or not, we would say is wrong. And we, we would say that judgment equals hatred. The thing is, especially with the church in our culture, is we don't want God, I think, I think we're, we're less, we don't want God necessarily to love me. I just want Him to be soft with me. I want God to accept me as I am and just, and just look over, look over the parts where I, I'm rebelling against Him. Look over the parts where I'm, I'm doing evil. I just want Him to accept me. I think this is a wrong equation, though. He's blue. Judgment could possibly be one of the most loving things you could ever do. Especially within the church. I mean, I think of, I think of two examples right offhand of, of how judgment is a good thing. At least judgment done right. Um, let's, say, let's say I have a friend. I'm not going to... I'm not going to point anyone out here, but let's say, let's say I have a friend that is, here, here's the line. You don't cross it. There, there's like, let's say, inside God's will, outside of God's will. And my friend's over there. For me to judge him and to, to rebuke him and say, what are you doing? You, that's wrong. Get over here. If that leads to him being restored, being made right, saying like, get back to where you know what's right, that's an incredibly loving thing. And on top of that, if we have people over here that are watching this person, they're watching him live his life, and maybe if he's a leader or she's a leader, um, judging, basing their own life off what they did, then maybe to rebuke and to judge this and bring him back would save people over here from going over there. I, I, want, I just want to be like Alec. And Alex living over here. So judgment is an incredibly loving thing, if done right. It's not hateful, as long, at least if we do it in the right spirit. And when it comes to wanting God, God's love, God's acceptance, I want you to hear this. Never, okay, never forget. I mean, for those, for those that are in Christ... God loves you as you are. God loves you as you are. If you're in Christ, God loves you as you are. He just doesn't want you to stay there. God loves you as you are, and you need to believe this for those that are in Christ. He just does not want you to stay there. He would like you to grow, to live, to walk, to love, to, to live rightly. Um, 
But to do that, to get to the love of God, we have to go through the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God. If, I said this a lot, if you are in Christ. And that is the question that we will be dealing with. Jared, can you read verses 5 through 7? Examine yourselves. So Paul, Paul says like this, Christ is in you. And if you remember an earlier sermon, I'm just going to call it the temple sermon. And we walk through what it meant to have, have God in us. Originally, it was the tabernacle. And God dwelt in the tabernacle so he could be a part of the people. Um, and then it moved on to a less temporary, more, more permanent establishment, the, the temple. Um, and the people could, all the nations were supposed to come and be in God's presence, but not, not actually in God's presence. There was the veil because they, they would die if they went behind the inner veil. And then through Jesus, the temple veil has been torn, and now Christ, the Holy Spirit, resides in you. And if you guys remember the analogy that was used, it's like imagine the sun with all of its power resides in you, in the church. But Paul says here, he has this very scary thought that I want to talk about for a little bit. If, in fact, you pass the test, verse 5, test yourselves, or do you not realize this, this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The exact words are, if you, if you qualify, Christ is in you unless you turn out to be unqualified. There are several verses that speak like this. Uh, Romans 8 is one of a favorite of everyone's. It's, uh, you know, there's all those great passages. There. It's like, the Spirit allows you to call God Abba, Father. The same Spirit that it resides in you, that, that was in Christ, that raised Christ from the dead, resides in you. But there's that, there's that if. If, indeed, the Spirit is in you. The awful if that's kept me up Many nights wondering. And Jesus speaks like this too. Um, Matthew 7 has a great one. He says, Many will come on the last day and will say, Lord, Lord. But I will say, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I, I never knew you. Like, we did all these good things. We casted out demons. We, we healed in your name. He's like, only those that, enter, that do the will of God will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't know how much you guys have thought about this, but it really is a scary thought. And I just want us to wrestle with this. Are we just making it up? Like, if I were to ask you, are you in Christ? Is the Holy Spirit in you? How would you answer? And how would you know? 
Does that apply to you? Are, you? are you unqualified? Am I unqualified? How would you know? I don't have to answer that. I'm going to have Drew answer that. And I'm glad because I'm asking the same questions. Um, but Drew's going to answer that later. I do, however, we are going to speak more about um, what to do regardless of the qualifications, regardless of the test. So verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. Even, Paul is saying, do right even if your leaders, people you look up to, seem to have failed. Maybe they have failed, maybe they haven't. But he's talking about himself. Paul is saying, even if it looks like we are weak, even if it looks like we are powerless, getting abused, beat up all the time, not living up to expectations, even if it seems that we are failures, I want you, church, to remain in Christ, to walk, regardless of what it looks like in us. He's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're like, whether we pass the test or not. We, like, I don't even know how they would be able to judge whether an apostle who represents Christ to them is passing the test or not. He's saying regardless of what it looks like, remain in Christ and do what is right. There's two things I want to say from this. Um, one is this should be nothing new to Christians. Um, Christians follow what looks like to be the biggest failure of all time. Jesus Christ had a lot of expectations around him on what he was supposed to do and what he was supposed to accomplish for the people. They thought he was going to come and save them and, and establish the kingdom of God now. Yet he died. A horrible death outside, rejected by his own people. But we know he was raised to life and that it was actually God's will. Um, so this idea of following even if it seems to be failure. It should be nothing new. But there's one other thing that I think this is just a good piece of wisdom. I don't know about you, but there's times where I feel, I don't know if the right word, disenchanted, um, let down. I, I expected something more. I, maybe, maybe Matt Chandler wasn't, hasn't been doing so great on sermons that you've been listening to. Um, Disenchantment is a good way, is a good test to show you what you're following. It could be that when the time comes where it's no longer, I no longer feel in it. I, don't, I, I no longer feel like that the, the messages we give at the table or, I don't know, I just, I, I, don't, I don't feel like it's going anywhere anymore. Disenchantment may be a good way to show you whether you're following Christ or whether you're just following the crowd or a charismatic leader. Okay. Verse, let's finish it out. Verse 8 through 10. For we are glad when we are weak and 
are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am awake. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Okay. So Paul is wrapping up and he says a couple things. He, he says a, one that doesn't, really, doesn't really make sense right off the back. He says that he's happy when they are weak and the church is strong. Um, when he says we are weak, he, he means the apostles. Um, here's the situation that he's speaking into. There's a church that's wanting to see power. That's wanting to see authority. Like Paul, show us something. Show us something more. Show us, show us that you have like God's spirit in you. There's a church that wants that, and the apostle doesn't want to come in power because he knows that if if he comes and if he has to to manifest God's power to him, and they are still living in unrepentant sin, that it's going to turn out bad for everyone, and they would want that too if they knew if they were thinking rightly, or if they were being restored. An apostle who does not want to come in power in a church who wouldn't want that if, he, if they knew what it was. See, Paul's aim, he, he, the entire, in the entirety of 2 Corinthians, I think the aim of 2 Corinthians can be summed up in this little verse, in verse 9. Your restoration is what we pray for. Repentance, restoration, and growth is the goal. Not Paul, or you could even read us, coming up and, and giving powerful sermons, not, not any sort of manifest like, I'm above you or better than you. No, the goal of any ministry in Paul's ministry specifically, is that the church would be led to repentance, to restoration, and to grow in Christ. Growth is the goal, I would say, is the goal of all discipleship. All this, you guys have had table groups, you meet together, we, we meet together right now, we speak, we, we pour into each other. I, a lot of you guys meet for coffee and hang out and just see what's going on in each other's lives. And we have this mentors pouring into the younger. Um, I would say growth is may, maybe, not, maybe not the goal, but is definitely a goal. To be outclassed or outshined by those that are under you, those that are younger than you, or those that are around you, that you're, that you're working with, that you're all trying to seek Christ together. Wouldn't it be awesome if, I don't know, I go off to Ozark for a couple years, and I come back and I'm like ten times as Christ-like as Scott and Drew. <laughs> Guys, I would let them know. I'd be like, oh, yeah, that scripture, whatever, I know that. Wouldn't it be so cool if I, wouldn't it, I think it'd be awesome. I mean, obviously, you, I'm not just trying to be fooling myself. Um, but it would be awesome for both of us, for, for, for me, for Scott, for Drew, for Rachel, 
because they have been a part in our growth. They have been a part of my growth. I've been coming to the table for, I think, three and a half years now. I started coming when I was a, a senior in high, in high school. And this ministry in Sunnybrook has been a massive way that God has spoke, that God has shown me their teaching. And I want to thank you guys. So for me to outclass them, which would be awesome, I would love that. I know I'm not thinking right, but for me to outclass them, for anyone to outclass me that's under me, is actually a really good thing. Because that's the aim of the church, that we all become Christ-like together. And if this idea of, I don't know, being overshadowed, um, maybe that this person might, might be recognized more than me, um, that, that, they, that they would look better in front of me. If that is a fear of yours, I don't think that you're operating from love for each other or love for the church. We, our goal is to become more Christ-like together. Restoration is the aim. Paul ends this section was saying, he quotes Jeremiah 24. So he says right here, I, uh, verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I am away with, from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my, use, in, my, in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. He quotes Jeremiah 24, verse 9, and verse 6. And I want to just read that for you guys real quick. Jeremiah is speaking to the people of Israel, speaking God's words to them. And he says, 24 verse 6, this is God speaking, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land, and I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return with me, they shall return to me with their whole hearts. Paul is saying that that, that aim that God is going to come and he's going to restore, he's going to build up, his aim is to build his church. That is what his ministry, his entire ministry, this entire book of Second Corinthians has been about. The power that he's been given is to build the church, build the unity together not to tear down. But, I will say, that sometimes, sometimes in order to build, tearing down must occur. This tearing down, this idea of judgment. And if we're, if we're building a house, and there's, there's parts that are broken, to build the house rightly, we'd have to take down, we'd have to judge the parts that should not be there, and act accordingly. Sometimes, tearing down must occur in order to build rightly. And this, so Paul, Paul is saying for him, and I think can be applied to you too, you have been given influence, abilities, friendships, status, whatever you want to call it, with each other in this 
in this time in college. Are you willing to tear down, judge, tear down in love each other, to be this for someone else? If I see something where my brother is acting wrong, are you willing to speak to that? And are you also willing to open your life up to others enough, allow them to see the parts of you that might not be right, and allow them to, to do the same? Psalms 141 speaks to this, this idea of judgment from righteousness. Let a righteous man strike me, that is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, that is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, for my prayer will still be against the deeds of the evildoer. It is the responsibility as members of the church to be this for each other. To speak to and allow others to speak to me. To, to rebuke and allow myself to be rebuked if I'm in the wrong. I think back to um, my story of my story about waiting for dad, um, waiting to be punished. I remember them vividly. And it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not I don't feel like scarred or anything. Um, but, and by the way, I don't know if, if you guys are pro spanking or whatever as when you're going to become parents. I just want to say that, that I needed it. Um, Maybe not for everyone, but I definitely needed it. Waiting for the judgment of my dad was a very good thing for me. Because through that, through that discipline, through that punishment, I've became who I am today. Being a spoiled child isn't, well, it's never good, but if, if I still acted the way I did and I never received the wrath, the judgment from my dad, then I, I would still be the way I was. Judgment from my earthly dad was a very good thing. In Hebrews 12, and I'll end with this, Hebrews 12 applies that directly to God. He says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when He rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastens everyone He accepts as His child. This idea of judgment, though harsh, though we might not want it, especially in our society, um, is actually how God uses it to build up and to strengthen you. And if that is what's happening, then rejoice because He's treating you as a child. For our good and holiness as His children. That is the end of my section. We're going to go ahead and take a little bit of a break, and then Drew will come up and answer whether we are Christians or not. Take a little break. All right. I didn't get around. There we go. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Until Alex surpasses me, I ought to get more applause than him. I think at every every chance. When he comes back in a few years, you can clap more for him. Um, 
Hey, before, you know, the topic tonight is semi-complicated. Um, not that the theme of it, or not that the actual information, but the way it hits a person's heart is kind of complicated. And so I want to I wanna kind of sandwich it in prayer, if you don't mind. I want to kind of start with prayer, and then we'll close with prayer around it, all right? Dear God, as we open up your word right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what he sees fit with it. You would give me the right words to say that will be true and clear. And if I'm speaking things that aren't, that you wouldn't let this be effective. But I pray for each individual person in here tonight, Lord, that you would enable them to hear this as you want them to hear it. And uh, to, to feel... Um, fear or comfort as you might want it. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what I want to do tonight is answer three questions out of this, out of this idea, specifically, specifically out of verse 5. I want to answer three questions, and I want to do it a lot just by opening up our Bible. So I hope you have your Bible ready or your Bible app or whatever it is. We're going to be, we're going to be moving through a lot of different texts. Um, as we go. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, several weeks ago on our Q&A night, we had up on the wall the vote um, of what questions you most wanted answered. And, and the one uh, that, that won, the one that got the most votes of any of them was this question, can a person lose their salvation? And, and so we spent a few minutes talking about it and, um, and obviously, it could have spent longer because clearly it's a, it's a question that is on people's minds. It's a question that people think about. And, and so we spent some time talking about it, but didn't get to go too in-depth. Um, the, the question I have uh, for you is, what would, and this is our fresh, first question for the night, what would Paul say about that question? If, if Paul was sitting up here on a stool on Q&A night and you asked that, what would be his answer? And uh, I just want to go to his own words to get some ideas about this. Go to Romans 11 real quick. The context of Romans 11 is Paul is talking about how the Jewish, there, are, there were unbelievers amongst the Jewish people. So the Jewish people were God's people. They were part of God's like vine growing. Um, and, um, and then there were a number of Jewish people who did not believe in Christ. And so Paul says they were cut off from God's vine. They were cut off as God's people, those who did not believe. And then he says, but then God started taking Gentiles and grafting them into the vine. Those who did believe in Jesus, those who did put their faith in, are now allowed to be a part of God's people. And this is what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and severity of God. So the kindness in grafting you in. He says, um, yeah, the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, that is those who've been cut off from the people of God, but kindness to you Gentiles. Kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. This is what Paul says. So, so you have received kindness as the Gentiles to be grafted in. And, and you, church in Rome, people who call themselves Christians, have been grafted into the people of God. If you continue in His kindness, he says, if you continue in your walk with Him, otherwise you will be cut off. And then there's this other passage, Colossians 1, 
21 through 23, and it's one of my one of my favorites. I would say it's it's one that's kind of stuck with me. You can go there. I memorized it in the NIV several years ago, so it's always a little bit different for those of you who have the ESV than what you're reading. But Paul says this: um, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight. Um, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moving from the hope held out in the gospel. I love that passage. I love because Paul says, this is what you were. You were enemies of God. But by Christ's physical body, through his death, he reconciled you over to him, brought you to him, and now you are presented as holy and free from accusation, without blemish. But then he says this, if you continue in your faith, if you continue in these things. Otherwise, he seems to be saying those things are not true. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. Starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified." Interesting uh, with that word right there. Actually, that word that Paul uses for disqualified is the exact same word that he uses in 2 Corinthians 13.5 that we just read, where Paul says, Do you not know that you are in Christ, or that Christ is in you, unless you fail, that's the word, disqualify from the test. Unless you fail the test. So this same word that Paul says to them, he says, examine yourselves to see that you're in, because Christ is in you unless you fail the test, he, he says this actual same word about myself, I stay focused, I run sure, I run strong so that I myself will not fail the test, so that I myself will not be disqualified. And so even to himself he applies, I want to stay the course in my own life, lest after preaching the gospel to all these other people and telling them to run to the prize, I myself may be disqualified. Um, now, there are some who will say, and I've, told, uh, I've talked about this, uh, there are some who will say, well, Paul's not talking about losing your salvation. He's merely saying when he says these things, people who, who are cut off from the kindness of God or, or you're reconciled to God if you continue in your faith, he's merely talking about people who were never really saved in the first place, who never really had faith. So what Paul is saying is if you don't continue in your faith, that's just a sign that you never really believed in the first place. And, and while I disagree with that, I, I don't totally believe that. Actually, I, I, can, I can get on board with those people. We're coming from the same page because I think both of us, who, both, both sides of that would agree that Paul does seem to say this. No, doesn't seem to say this. Paul says this. Paul says that this is true, um, that it is possible to think you belong to Jesus because you prayed a prayer when you were a kid or because you got baptized at church camp, or because you go to church every week, it is possible to think that you belong to Jesus and be wrong. 
to think that you are his and not really be his, to think that you are in Christ and not be his. And so that leads us to this second question, how do I know? How do I know if, if it's possible to think that I'm a Christian and not really be? How do I know if I am? Or in other words, when Paul says examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith, what are the criteria for that? How does a person examine themselves to know these things? There are three criteria, I believe, to know whether or not this isn't, and, and this is the good news. It's not just like a mystery. It's not a, well, you can't really know. You just, you die and keep your fingers crossed and hope things go well after that, right? That's, that's not true, actually. No, there are, there are three things that, that I think are, are fairly straightforward in Scripture to know if a person is a Christian. The first is this, um, you know by what you believe. 1 John, you can go to 1 John and you may as well keep a finger there because um, we'll be in 1 John a lot. There are a number of people who believe that actually this is the main purpose of 1 John was written to allow to give people um, signs of their faith, to help them know with surety that they are in, that they are part of God's people. So 1 John 5, 11, we'll start in, yeah, start in 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Um, so John says here, this is, this is critical, and this is, you guys know this, this is kind of foundational. Believing in the Son, Jesus, is, is how a person can know that they have eternal life. So what you believe matters. But it really does matter not just kind of do you believe in Jesus. There are a lot of people in America in the Bible Belt who would say, I believe in Jesus, but that really doesn't mean much to them other than the fact that they believe, you know, he existed. Uh, they believe that he, you know, was a really good teacher. They believe something about him, but we actually need to believe specific things about him. 1 Corinthians 15 is kind of the foundational material for that. This is what... Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, um, verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if, there's that word again, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And here's the word. Here's the gospel I gave to you. Here's the thing that you need to hold fast to. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's kind of key that, that Christ came, the Messiah, the Son of God came and died for our sins. And He was buried and He was raised back to life to believe those things. You can go and just write down Romans 10 verses 9 through 11 where, where Paul will talk about if anyone believes, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Um, and so this idea, confessing Jesus, not just that He forgives gives my sins, but that He is Lord, but that He is King, those ideas, it matters what you believe. There are a number of people today, I actually know this is probably the most common form of spiritual belief today, is that it does not matter exactly what you believe, but just that you believe something. 
That in essence, we all kind of believe in the same God. We just kind of have different views of God, that we believe different things about God. It doesn't really matter as long as you're genuine in that belief, as long as you're really trying to be faithful in that belief. But the Bible does not seem to leave, uh, to lose, to leave any room for that does not seem to give us that, actually it does not give us that option. I use this illustration, uh, I've used it in here before, I, I think it's really helpful and I kind of, um, it's, it's not my own, but I like it. If I were to stand up here and start to talk to you about how much I love my wife and, and I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my wife Amy and tell you how she's, um, she's this redhead, she's about 6'2". Um, and from, from we met, because she'd come to school, she'd come to Bible college from Portland, Oregon, which is where she grew up all her life, loves seafood, cannot get enough of seafood. She just eats it all the time. Um, pretty sweet girl, kind of a jerk to kids, though. Um, not real great with our kids, kind of, you know, kind of cranky all the time with, with little ones, and so not real great to be around. Listen, those of you who know my wife... Um, know that if she were sitting in the back of the room right now, she would not be happy with me um, because Amy is none of those things that I just described. But if she would come to me afterwards and be angry, and I said, whoa, 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 babe, I, I love you. I genuinely love, I genuinely believe these things. And she would say, listen, whatever you love, whoever you love is not me. You're describing the person you love is another woman altogether which would make her very angry, or she is a figment of your imagination. And we recognize this in marriage, right? That I can't just, it's, even if I said to you, no, but I genuinely believe these things about my wife, but I genuinely love her. You don't go, no, that's a, okay, well, as long as you genuinely believe that that's who your wife is. Even if I, if I as Alex said, what if I'm genuinely wrong in those things? And, and we recognize this when it comes to marriage. We recognize this when it comes to school or to your job, that you actually, in order for your devotion to something to matter, it needs to be true. And yet often people want to throw those out with God. And, and, and the truth is what we believe about God matters deeply and to believe the right things. You can know you're a Christian by whether or not you believe the right things about Jesus, whether you believe that He is the Son of God who came and died for our sins to save us, that He resurrected again on the third day and is declared to be the Lord of the universe. Those things matter. The other uh, second bit of criteria that are used to, dis, uh, to know if you're a Christian is so the first is what you believe. The second is who you love. Who you love is how you can know if you're a Christian. Obviously, this includes God, that I can't just believe things about God, but that I ought to have some level of commitment and devotion to Him. We know this, but this manifests itself in a love for His people. And we talked about this a little bit last week. I, I, I said stay in 1 John. Let me read 1 John 5, 1 to you. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So that's our first criteria, belief right there, right? And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So 1 John says this, If you are someone who actually loves God, then you are somebody who loves His children. Those two things have to go together and cannot be separated. So you can know if you love God by whether or not you love His children. Galatians 5, 6, you don't have to turn there, says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So he's talking about how a person can belong 
to God's people. And he says it's not by being circumcised. It's not by being Jewish. It's not by being the Gentile or the opposite of that. That's not what matters. The only thing that makes you a part of the people of God is, he says this, faith. But then he defines faith this way. But the only thing that matters is faith working through love. Or some translations say faith that is expressing itself in love. Here's how you know your faith is genuine. Does it result in love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Uh, flip a page over if you're still in 1 John. 1 John 3.14. I said we'd be doing a lot of Bible passages tonight. 3.14 says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we know that we've passed from being not a Christian to a Christian unsaved to save, out of death into life because we love the brothers. And, and that word, adelphoi in the Greek, um, is kind of a broad term to mean brothers and sisters. We love our siblings. We know that because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever does not love the brothers and sisters, whoever does not love the church. And if you read through John, he'll go on to say this, that that means, he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he'll say, so let us not love in uh, word, but let us love in action and in deed. So love means that I actually care for, I sacrifice myself on behalf of my brothers and sisters. So you can know you're a Christian based on what you believe and based on who you love, and then last, you can know based on how you live. Alec referenced Matthew 7.21 already. Not everyone uh, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom on that day, but only those who do the will of my Father. Galatians 5. I'll go there real quick. Right after 2 Corinthians. Galatians 5. Verses 19 through 21 says this, um, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, that sounds kind of like the vice list from last week, right? Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's warning people who are part of the church. I warn you that people who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then back in First John, I believe it's chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. This one's a strong one. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, and no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That, by the way, is a great... John says a couple things in here that's really important to know. He, he doesn't say no one who belongs in God sins. He doesn't say that. He says no one keeps on sinning. No one makes a practice of 
sinning. He's describing this continual kind of lifestyle as he's saying this one. Makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So this is how you know whether you can know whether you're a Christian by how you live. So this leads to our third big question. Um, and the language here is a little bit technical in this question, so bear with me. The third question goes like this. Oh crap, what if I'm not a Christian? Right. And, and the truth is, I know as I'm reading some of those verses, if you're anything like me, that that question is going through your head. That there are some of you in here um, tonight that are um, maybe terrified or on the verge of a panic attack right now. When I was a kid, I went to this small Christian school um, all growing up, and, and we had chapel every Wednesday morning. And, and different people came and preached or taught in chapel during those times. And, and there's one, he was actually a guy who helped teach at the school sometimes. He wasn't like full-time staff, but helped there a lot. His name was Dr. White. And Dr. White and his wife both helped at the school, and they were both very helpful to me, very kind and sweet people. I remember Dr. White preaching in chapel. Maybe it was just one time. It felt like every time he preached, he preached this sermon. But it could have just been once, and it just burned in my head so much. But Dr. White was talking about how as Christians, the assurance that we can have of our salvation, that we can know that we are saved. And he was hammering this point how as Christians we ought to have an assurance. And I remember him saying this. Um, he said, if you're not 100% sure where you would go if you died tonight, you are not saved. If you don't know, because as Christians, we ought to be able to know. So if you don't know 100%, like if you died tonight, where you would go, you are not saved. You need to get yourself right with the Lord. And, and a little 10 or 11-year-old kid sitting in the pew there hearing that. And for those of you guys who know me, um, you know that I'm not really like 100% sure of anything ever in my whole life. Um, like I hate on staff Mondays when it falls on me to, to, to choose where we're going to lunch because I'm not sure where I want to go to lunch. Um, and, and if my wife asked me when I got back tonight what any of you were wearing at all, at, at all I, I would not, I would just say, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. And, and it takes me a while whenever I, I wrestle with an idea, when an idea gets put forward uh, for me politically or theologically a lot of times, it, it's difficult for me to, to land on something with certainty, with like 100%. There are some people whose personalities are easy to go, yes, I, I know this beyond the shadow of a doubt, and I'm not one of those people. And then especially even if I feel confident about it, the moment you ask me, then I lose confidence about it, right? So there's like a ritual in our home um, that takes place somewhat regularly. It's kind of stopped a little bit. My wife has kind of learned a little bit. But I will like, before we're all, everyone's in bed, and my wife and I are going to bed, and before we do that, I make the rounds. I lock, the, lock all the doors in the house, just make sure they're locked. And then I walk back to the bedroom, and I know that I've locked the doors because I just freaking did it. And I lay in my bed, and my wife goes, did you lock the doors? And I go, ah! And I have to get up and go check the doors again because I know I did, but I'm not 100% sure I did, even though I just did it. Um, and I do that. And, and even my wife, like I said, has, st has stopped asking me, but I still, I, I promise you, two to three times a night, check the doors. Um, because there is something in me that always goes, are you sure? You're not fully sure, are you? And so I, I 
took this, this goofy part of my personality, took the truths that were preached to me in that chapel service, and took those deep into my heart and lived a life of complete fear for many years in my life. And this idea of you can know a Christian by what they believe, and it was so hard for me to know, did I really, trying to think back, I was seven years old when I got baptized, did I really know what I was doing? Did I really believe that? Do I, do I 100% believe that today? Am I 100% sure those kinds of things and those questions kept me up at night through tears? And, and as I told you a few weeks ago, through many discussions with my dad about that. And then as I grew up, and honestly a little bit more of the certainty about my faith started to solidify, it was those other two uh, areas, those other two kind of criterion that, that really started to mess with me. Um, how well do I love the church? And, and even more, how well do I live my life? Because I don't feel like, I met, actually, no, it's not I don't feel. I know that I do not love the church as I ought to. And I know that I do not live my life as I ought to be living it. Not all the time, that there are a lot of times where that text I just read from Galatians 5 about sexual immorality and sensuality and envy and greed and divisions, that that describes me a whole lot more than the next text, which comes after that, and that is the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience. The fruit of the Spirit, this is how you know the Spirit's in you. And I read that text, and I read the vice list right before, and I know which one sounds way more like me sometimes. And I wrestle with that, and I struggle with that, and, and those things begin to, to cause all kinds of fear in me and all kinds of doubt in me wondering about those things and the Lord has slowly but surely worked on me in those areas if that's you tonight or maybe that wasn't maybe it wasn't just tonight maybe you've thought about this for a long time and worried and wondered about this for a long time maybe you never worried about it before until tonight thanks a lot Drew um, and now you're really worried about it. listen let me give you just a few kind of cautions or warnings, or whatever you want to say, a few cautions as we kind of wrap some stuff out. So, I gave you three questions. I gave you three criteria. I'm giving you three cautions. The first is this. Do not confuse commitment to Christ with perfection. So, I believe that the Bible calls us to a continued commitment to Christ. That I am that I ought to not just say I believe in Him, but my life, I want to be committed to Him. I do not believe that the Bible is expecting, although it is calling me towards this, to grow towards this, I don't believe what, what Jesus is talking about when He says, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven is perfection. He's not talking about someone who never messes up. He's not talking about someone who never blows it, who never struggles. If that's you who struggles, you don't have to freak out about that. Um, remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 7. He wounds, he talks about how his letter grieved the Corinthians and how it kind of hurt them. And he said, I, I hate that, but, but truthfully, it doesn't bother me that much. I'm kind of glad that I grieved you because what you experienced was a godly grief that led to repentance. And he said, and I want that for you. I want you to have the kind of grief that leads you to repentance. Now, repentance implies what? failure. Paul says a good, right Christian experiences repentance, which means a good, right Christian experiences failure. 
sins, messes up. And, and Paul says, that's not the biggest issue. My big issue is once you have sinned, do you repent of that? Do you desire to grow away from that, to be more like Jesus? Or does it just not even phase you? Are you proud? Are you able to continue on in your sin without it bothering you? In fact, if you wanted to put under how you live your life under the criteria, you could put like one of the main criteria for how you live your life is whether or not you live a life of repentance when you realize that you have sinned. Um, 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says this, that God, Paul says that he wants this for the Thessalonians. Just as they learned to walk in God and please God, he says, I want you to do it more and more. Which means that they're not doing it perfectly yet. And Paul doesn't go and so be ready because hell's coming, you're not doing it perfectly. No, no, no. He has complete confidence in them. And, but he says, but I just want you to keep growing. There is a progression that goes here. And the Christian life is one that you're going to grow in more and more. But it, it's not something that you have perfection. Here's kind of the interesting thing, though. Actually, as you grow more and more, you're going to become more and more aware of more sins in your life. Kevin DeYoung says this, It is the testimony of most great saints that the closer they got to God, the more of their sin they began to see. And sometimes, actually, you start looking and you see all the sin in your life and you start feeling really worse, like worse about yourself. Sometimes that is a good sign that actually you are growing up and God is revealing some of the areas in your life that have always been there, but that now he's ready to show to you and begin to work on in you. So don't lose heart if you're trying to grow after God, even if you see your sin for all it is and how how far off you can be of the mark. And then let me give you this verse, 1 John 1, 8 through 9. Whether you go there or not, you need to write it down. And when you do go there, you need to, to underline these words. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John says to these Christian people, you will have sin in your life. If you say you don't, you're deceiving yourself. And then he says in verse 9, And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you say you don't have sin, you're lying to yourself. But if you're able to confess your sin, He forgives you. Now, now real quick, just a quick side thing. That doesn't mean after every sin you better confess it. And if I'm telling a lie as I walk across the street and a car hits me before I have time to confess that sin, then I'm hosed and I'm going to hell from there on out, right? That's not at all what he means. He's saying, if you are a person who can confess that I am a sinful person, you can know this, that God is faithful to this, that he forgives you of your sin, that your sins are forgiven in Jesus. Your many sins are forgiven in Jesus. So do not confuse commitment to Christ, which is what the Bible expects, with perfection, as though perfection is what you need in order to be saved. Number two, don't confuse inspection with introspection. You ought to inspect yourself every now and then. You ought to, as Paul says, examine yourself. But be careful about getting very introspection or very introspective to where you constantly look inward. It is good to periodically examine ourselves, but constantly looking inward, going, am I really a Christian? Am I really saved? Am I really doing the right thing? Constantly looking inward is unwise and unhealthy. Here's a couple reasons why. One is I can't evaluate myself on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So if I try to every day just go, am I really living up to the Bible today? Am I really living, how about today? Am I really living, it's, it's actually, you cannot evaluate yourself. You really, to be able to evaluate whether you are growing, you need to be able to step back and look at like large swaths of your life. There are going to be days when you look more like the vice list in Galatians 5 than you do the fruit of the Spirit. And that day, that one day, doesn't mean you're definitely going to hell. Doesn't mean you're, it's all over for you. No, no, if you get caught up every day just trying to check and examine, you're going to get yourself, um, you're, you're going to be in an unhealthy place. You will always be able to find ways that you don't measure up to the standard God has given you. And here's what I have found in my own life. I am guilty of being someone who gets very introspective and really likes to look, and am I really saved, and do I really believe this, and am I really living the right way? And what it actually does is it paralyzes me, and it makes me self-obsessed, and I think a whole lot more about myself and what's going on in here than I do about other people. And it hinders me from doing the work that God is calling me to because I am so caught up with myself. Do not be, do not get caught up in always looking inward and getting nervous. You don't, that, you don't have to do that. That doesn't have to be you. I love what Robert Murray McShane says. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And that leads us to this third caution I would give you. Do not confuse yourself with your Savior. What I mean by that is do not start to believe that any of this depends on you. That it is on you. That that you are the one who is able to make yourself right with God. And don't believe that you are the one that it depends on to keep yourself right with God. Listen, if it did depend on you, then yes, you ought to be freaked out. But it never has, and it never will. God loved you enough to save you while you were his enemy, which means he's not going to leave you now that you're his son or his daughter. He loved you enough that while you were against him, he sent his own son to die for you, which means when you fail as his son or daughter, he's not going to roll his eyes and walk out of the room in disappointment like maybe some of your parents did, like maybe a teacher or a coach did. That's not God. He loved you enough to save you all your enemies. He loves you then. So he loves you in your failures. And he loves you enough to put his own power behind your sanctification and growth. I love this verse from 1 Thessalonians 5. It's verses 23 and 24. Again, you can just write it down. Paul says this. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So if you go, man, I, I don't know if I, if I can be the kind of person who lives up to Jesus' standards. I don't know if I've, if I've got it in me to love well enough. I don't know if I've got The good news is, no, you don't. But God, and by His Holy Spirit in you, does have enough to do that. And He is faithful, and He is committed. The Creator of the universe is committed to your growth and sanctification. And He is at work in you to do those things. I don't want you um, to live in a, a panicked anxiety about your faith. What I want you to live in is a sober confidence sober in that you take this seriously, sober in that you take pause to examine sometimes, sober in that those of you who are living in unrepentant sin 
will make that right and will ask what is going on in your heart that makes you like that, but also a confidence knowing that you belong to God and that God is at work in you and that he is faithful to this to sanctify you through and through. Please do not. Let me give this one last thing and then we'll pray. Please do not go off into the summer break freaking out about your status before Jesus. If there is anything in you that wonders or worries about those things, talk to someone. Talk to your table group host. Talk to Scott or Rachel or myself. Talk to someone who can say, yeah, maybe you should be a little bit scared. Or, you've got nothing to worry about. I see it in you. I can see Christ in you. I can see the Spirit working in you. Wouldn't either of those things be awesome? I mean, one wouldn't be fun at first, but it'd point you in the right direction. Like, I... Either of those things would be wonderful. So if there is any fear in you about those things, talk to someone who can help you work through those things. Now let me, um, let me pray for us and then pray the prayer of 1 Thessalonians over us. God, I know, I know this is heavy. Even as I'm teaching, you know my, my own thoughts wondering if this is too much, but it's your word. So I want to trust your word to do the work and trust your spirit to do the work. And again, convict those who need to be convicted and comfort those who need to be comforted and, and, and let us know the truth. And let us be committed to seek after you, but let us be committed to the, the truths of your gospel, that you love us and that you gave us grace um, and that you continue to give us grace today. And now may you, the God of peace, sanctify us completely. And may our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ because you who call us are faithful and you will surely do it. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, we're done for the night. Um, Scott, you said meeting next week for freshmen, right? Before, did we say that? After, After. all right, sweet. We're done. Hang out with us for a little bit.